Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Ortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast, 6 a.m. out in the mountains, 5 a.m. out west, and all time zones in between and around the world. Thank you and welcome into the show. Yesterday finished up Champions League action for the week. Liverpool big winners. Barcelona escaping with a 2-1 win away. Klopp was not happy with the performance of Liverpool and um and and that is the reason why they've been successful as of recent. Um, you play to a standard, not a score. He was happy with the score. Didn't feel like the standard of play was very good. In regards to um, Barcelona, uh, I, I just I feel like it's going to be a grind until. Um, until a new manager's there. We've talked about it before. Uh, I, I just don't see... Um, I just don't see much changing between now and uh, and then. So until a new manager's there, I think uh, I think this is Barcelona. They're gonna, always going to be dangerous. I think they can go deep and they can go far because of, uh, of the players, the individual talent on the field. Obviously, you have the best player on the planet. Um, but coaching definitely makes a difference. And I, I am no Valverde fan as I have talked about many times. Um, wanted to start the show off today looking at MLS TV ratings. This is from, uh, Christopher Harris with world soccer talk. Met Chris met Christopher, uh, down in South Florida a few months ago. Good guy. And, um, he has a has a post up on World Soccer Talk. MLS TV ratings slump nineteen percent during regular season. Playoffs take a nosedive. TV viewing numbers for the two thousand nineteen MLS regular season saw a dramatic decline compared to last year. So much so that the MLS TV ratings slumped nineteen percent, while the opening weekend of the MLS playoffs dropped fifty four percent. For the 2019 regular MLS season, viewership over the 62 televised broadcast averaged 268,081 viewers, according to research from World Soccer Talk. That compares to an average of 332,435 last year for the same number of games, marking a 19.35% decline in viewership across all MLS broadcasters combined. That's FS1, Fox, ESPN, ESPN2, Univision, Unimas, and TUDN. MLS fans may attribute the dramatic decline to the impact MLS games have with the World Cup as lead-in on the over-the-air Fox networks. But when MLS broadcasts from over-the-air Fox are removed from the 2018 and 19 data, the overall viewing average still dropped 9.4% from 2019 to 2018. While MLS TV ratings continue to decline year-over-year, 
The 2019 regular MLS season saw a greater average viewing audience on Spanish language television than the English language TV networks. Univision Networks averaged 238,000 viewers for MLS games compared to 203,000 for viewers on Fox Sports and ESPN. Having said that, MLS viewership on Univision Networks dropped 17% in 2019 compared to 2018. The downward trend of MLS TV ratings continues on Fox Sports, where viewing numbers averaged 223,294 in 2019 compared to 235,581 in 2016, which is a 5.2% decline. Any hopes of a... TV ratings boost during the opening round of the MLS playoffs failed to materialize last weekend. Out of the six games featured on U.S. television, the MLS playoffs averaged 177,500 viewers at a time when you would expect viewing numbers to skyrocket given the league's fixation on using a format from traditional American sports. The average viewership for the 2018 MLS playoffs knockout round was 390,750. The decline from 2019 to 2018, the average viewing audience plummeted 54.5%. I want to pause for a moment and just just let you let you digest those numbers. unbelievable you hear all of these uh proclamations about you know the the playoff format works best and you know mls is growing i mean you may be multiplying but if you're multiplying times negative percentage that means you're shrinking not growing um, one point that I, that I want to point out here is this. Christopher points out that Univision Network's average 238,000 for MLS games compared to 203,000 viewers on Fox Sports and ESPN combined. We have a lot of people in this country where Spanish is their first language. Now, that may bother some of you. It doesn't bother me. But one of the issues, and and later in the show, we're going to get back to this article that we were on yesterday. One of the issues with our system is we are not open to anyone from anywhere to do whatever they dream. We have a lot of people that love the game, that want to follow the game here in America. But the way Major League Soccer is constructed, it does not provide open opportunity even to a demographic that watches the league more than the English language TV networks. 
So this idea that U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer are doing everything they can to grow the game is, even when you look at the numbers, it's just laughable. It's just not, it's not real. That's all marketing speak. And Don Garber is really good at it. He'll go on TV and he'll he'll ensure, as, as he always does, that those who work in the sport help prop up this image of MLS. But the realities are the realities. The numbers here are not telling the same story that Don Garber wishes that uh, were true. And that is that viewership is declining overall. Spanish language broadcasts continue to outdo English language broadcast, and I think there's a I think there's a few reasons for that. And yet, at the same time, when we look at Major League Soccer in, in the U.S. Soccer Federation, they do not welcome with open arms those who speak English as a second second language. If you want to really grow the sport, we've, we've got to tap into everyone who loves football. That should be the first, first determinant in what we're trying to do. How does MLS fix their TV ratings problem? This is uh, more from Christopher Harris. Unfortunately for MLS, there isn't a quick fix to their declining TV ratings. The problems the league faces are systemic and would require seismic changes to alter the perception of the league's lesser quality of play and inconsistent production value. With the league focusing most of its efforts on generating expansion fees, signing new sponsors, and increasing attendance numbers... Major League Soccer has taken their foot off the pedal and neglected the league's TV partners. Instead of, just as one example, focusing on shifting the league's calendar so the most important time of the season doesn't conflict with NFL and college football, MLS carries on with a business-as-usual approach. We'll get back to that in just a moment. At the same time, MLS continues to increase the number of teams in the league, which has the double impact of diluting the quality of American players across Major League Soccer while making the relatively meaningless regular season even less relevant. After all, when 58% of the teams make the playoffs, what's the incentive to watch the league's first five months when teams can go on a winning run in the late summer to qualify for the MLS MLS Cup playoffs? Nothing seems to change in MLS, and the issues with the league go unaddressed. Before moving on, I want to pick up on something Christopher points out. That instead of focusing on shifting the league's calendar so the most important time of the season doesn't conflict with the NFL and college football, MLS continues to play with a spring-to-fall calendar. They'll start usually in March, and they'll finish in October-November. Now, you've got a lot of things going on right now. You've got college football. You've got the NFL. You've got the NBA starting up and the World Series. 
and you're starting your playoffs going head-to-head against all of that. Put this in another way. Put this in another calendar format. Fall to spring. If your first division is kicking off in August and taking a winter break, finishing in May, your competition in May is early season baseball, but your past opening day. So you may have a spike for baseball, you know, end of March, early April. However, the 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 viewing numbers and excitement kind of dips a little bit in May for baseball. You have the NBA playoffs. That's it. College basketball is already over. So the month of, month of May is this golden opportunity. Even if you didn't go to a single table format, the month of May is a golden opportunity to have the lion's share. I mean, the broadcasters are are looking for content. Christopher, uh, I completely agree with you on the calendar. It just doesn't make sense for where we are. And we'll get back into more of his uh, article here coming up shortly. Our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. Go to Ductic Brand and use the promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order. We'll be right back after this.
welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in on this Thursday, October the 24th. Picking back up on the, this article that we were looking at before the break, MLS TV ratings slump 19% during the regular season. Playoffs take a nosedive. This is by Christopher Harris from World Soccer Talk. Another worrying concern is that MLS doesn't have a solid foundation of hardcore fans who are interested in watching the league on national TV. MLS supporters are more likely to be casual fans, easily switching allegiances to NFL or college football teams when their MLS team isn't playing. Even when it isn't NFL or college football season, most MLS fans are disinterested in watching games from the rest of the league. Given given that there's so much of a focus on selling tickets to local games, and the relatively poor quality of the league, it's not surprising that fans of local MLS teams don't have much interest in watching the rest of the league on television. While the likelihood of promotion and relegation ever happening in MLS is a pipe dream, given the league's business model, the league needs to address how diluted the product is when you have 29 teams and growing. Ideally, the league needs to consider MLS and MLS 2 leagues where the top 14 teams compete in the top flight league and the remainder of the MLS two teams play in the secondary league with chances to advance to the top tier. But knowing MLS executives, I don't foresee the league changing anything anytime soon. It's more likely that the league will continue to expand until they have 20 teams in the Western conference, 20 more in the Eastern conference Given that generation generating expansion fees is the number one goal for the league, it's no wonder that TV ratings are unimportant to them. After all, when MLS TV rights are combined with the U.S. national teams, as they have been for years, it means that MLS TV rights are subsidized by the U.S. Soccer Federation. If the MLS rights were uncoupled from the U.S. national team contracts, MLS would then have to sink or swim and to make serious changes. To fix MLS TV ratings, fans will have a laundry list of ideas that they believe will help the league. Setting up a more consistent TV schedule, TV networks to need to advertise more, MLS needs better players, etc. However, none of these factors will help because the core structure of Major League Soccer is broken for two main reasons. Number one. MLS games are not as competitive as other leagues because the champion is determined in a cup competition after five months of largely irrelevant league games. Second, the quality of soccer in the bottom half of MLS is poor because there's no penalty or relegation and very little accountability for a team that plays badly in the league. Meanwhile, soccer fans in the U.S. have access to better soccer from around the world. It's more accessible than MLS games. As a result, viewers are tuning out Major League Soccer and tuning in to other leagues, clubs, and competitions from around the world. So, looking at uh, some of the things that Christopher Harris is looking at in terms of uh, solutions for Major League Soccer. It's kind of like, uh, you know, someone that has a problem 
the first thing that you have to do is admit that you have a problem. I'm not convinced that Major League Soccer knows it has a problem, or if it does, it certainly has not admitted so publicly. It's always spin. You see this in in political elections. Something may be going wrong. House may be on fire. And a political pundit will come on TV and say everything's great, even though you see the fire raging in the background. The pictures don't add up with the words. And that's what we see here with Major League Soccer. The pictures don't add up with the words. All of these proclamations about the league is growing. We're doing more to, to grow the game. It's getting better, etc. Don't They don't jive with lower TV numbers. With the playoff format with the calendar. They don't jive with what fans see in terms of quality of play on TV. The truth is the way to solve this issue, the way to make this better is to first admit publicly admit that Major League Soccer has some serious issues that need to be addressed. That's called accountability. It's also called leadership. It takes real character to stand up and admit where things aren't going well. But it's that raw honesty that Major League Soccer needs now more than ever in order to win over the public. Authenticity matters. People are not showing up to national team matches. Major League Soccer stadiums all over the country are seeing declining attendance, TV ratings dropping. Instead of trying to get up and do a sales job of everything's fine and we're growing, meanwhile, behind you, we can see the house is on fire. Don Garber, Carlos Cordero, and others need to be honest with the public. We already know that the emperor has no clothes, but the emperor's got to admit he has no clothes. We can already see issues, and the issues are so numerous and so important that even those who may not know exactly what it is, they may not be able to put a name to a problem, but they feel it. You've got to come before the public and just say, look, we need to get better. 
We're falling short in some areas. We've got to get better. Everything's on the table. We want to fix our issues. That's what is required of the Federation. That's what's required of MLS if they're interested in fixing those issues. Nothing up until this point has shown anyone that they're very serious about that. And that's an issue unto itself. An issue that um, gives us these cycles of disconnected comments from reality. Here's some things that I would do uh, to fix Major League Soccer. I would start with core principles. And I would let those core principles guide everything that we do. If we want to be the best league in America, the best league for soccer, but the best league overall, if that's our goal, and it should be, if you are designated as the top league in the U.S., you should be trying to become not just the best soccer league in America, but you should be trying to become the best sports league in America. If that is your goal, then you need to double down on, on doing things to get you there. So that means that if that becomes the number one motivating principle, that everything is on the table. Everything. Excuse me. So calendar becomes on the table. Format comes on the table. Scheduling comes on the table. TV partners on the table. Broadcasting personalities on the table. Everything's put down on the table. And we start finding ways to improve every single area. Even the areas that we think we're good at. We got to find ways to improve it. If we know that there's a better TV calendar window, we got to go for it. If our, if, if, even if we don't change our overall competitive format, meaning regular season and playoffs, no promotion and relegation, even if we don't change that, what can we do right now to get better? Well, if our if the first five leagues of uh, f- first five months of our league is not very competitive, not very compelling, not great television, then let's bury that in the fall. Let's pick back up after a winter break in the spring, when the competition starts to really pick up, 
and build towards playoffs finishing with a signature final in May. That's one step in the right direction. Now, that's not going to fully change everything. That one decision is not going to take the MLS ratings and, and, and reverse them. This is why I, I'm, I'm saying we have to put everything on the table. If we're going to fix this, we've got to put everything on the table and, and let it, our guiding principle have the biggest priority in determining our decisions. So we're going to put it all on the table. And we're going to say, look, we're going to, we're going to change the schedule. We're going to start in the fall, finish in the spring. That's going to give us a better TV window. Okay, check. We've improved that area. Another thing that we can do, we can find a way with a with a realistic plan to engage every community in this country through promotion and relegation. But we're going to do it in a way that makes sense. The U.S. is a continent-sized country. We have to take that into account in the way that we set up our leagues. What doesn't make sense is to say that your top league should be 20 teams and your second division should be 20 teams and your third division should be 20 teams. We are not a tiny island nation or or a, a country on the continent of Europe. We are the freaking continent of Europe. So we have to take regionalization and localization and factor that heavily into what we do. That means that our second division could easily feature anywhere between 60 and 80 teams. That would be considered first division quality around the world. We need to think in, 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 in the way that we're set up in this country in a format that looks at the success that has been had around the country. Where's the success come from? It's come from finding ways to regionalize competition. If you, if you created these kind of super conference setups with a Champions League style first division, you could have something amazing. And if you slotted in 30, 40 MLS teams and some USL championship teams into that second division with a Champions League style cup competition style Division One league sitting on top of it with, say, 16 teams, four coming from each of the four super conferences, you're talking about a whole different conversation in regards to engagement in communities across this country. Now, if you have four super conferences 
the likelihood that that major league soccer teams are going to be relegated when you've got 80 slots or the potential to have 80 slots in the second division it's going to be a long time before you're even probably looking at that and so what if you are do what you do better get better at what you do It's a competition. I don't understand sympathy for ownership groups of teams. Like, oh, we shouldn't put them in a position to have to compete. It's a competition. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. So when we look at, at fixing Major League Soccer, if we stick to that that principle, that guiding principle, that we want to be the best league in this country, not just for soccer, but sports league in general, then we, we need to f- find things that are going to help us get us there. Changing the calendar format, fall to spring. Changing the, the competition format, where we regionalize and localize as much and as quick as possible. Another thing that we need to do is make the games more accessible. If you have a product and people can't see it, or it's harder to see what you're doing domestically versus the access they can get from overseas games that are higher broadcast quality, higher uh, competition quality, of course you're going to struggle. You got to have an open mentality with a TV. Put the games out there where you can see them anywhere, anytime. Make them all accessible. I think back to the success that the, that NBC had with the Premier League when they first got the Premier League package. They made it possible so that you could see any game all the time. Now, they had their picked games that they were going to to, to show on either NBC or NBC Sports Network, NBC SN, and they would show some other games on USA and so on and so forth. But most of the games... We're in the, like this extra package. They called the Premier League Extra, I believe. And, and it was free. It just was included. You could see it. And they did that for a couple of years, and they built the audience and the fan base. Then they looked to monetize that with NBC Sports Gold. That's the kind of thinking we need to see with Major League Soccer. Get these games more accessible. More and more people are watching content on their phones. Make it easy for them to find it. An MLS extra app where they can just download it and watch the games are there. Bring in all of the, the local market feeds. Bring in all of the national market feeds. Get it into your next TV deal and make those games accessible. 
changing the calendar format, changing the the competition format, changing the accessibility of the league, it would go a long way in improving these TV numbers, improving the interest in the league. And lastly, the thing that is going to help more than anything is to show an authentic desire to engage every community in this country. And I mentioned that about promotion and relegation, but it goes beyond that. It goes into a mindset. And we're going to get back into that in just a minute with this article that we began looking at yesterday. We've got to change the posture of the Federation as well as Major League Soccer. An exclusionary mindset is never going to lead to elite football it's never going to lead to elite soccer whether that's development whether that's a first team whether that is a national team and if you come at me with this idea that well our u.s women's national team is on another level and yet they're in the same system you have to look at this not in a vacuum but take everything into account The U.S. women's national team has succeeded because the rest of the world has not invested. So we've kind of been on our our own. We've actually been the breeding ground for most of these national teams. Their players have come over here and played in college and then gone home and played for their, their respective national teams. Now that's starting to change some. They're starting to have some professional opportunities in Europe, and that's starting to change. But I would also argue that our national team could be even better, and we have the best squad of players in this country if we had an open mentality. We didn't have a single Latina on this national team. We can be better. And I think we've been as good as we've been because of, not because of the Federation, but because of the fact that we live in a country that has a law and a policy with Title IX that basically sets up for these schools that they have to fund female women's programming. And and those rules have created an environment that has allowed female soccer to flourish in a world where it wasn't a priority or much of a priority anywhere else. We're starting to lose that advantage, but that has been our advantage. And so you've had all of these young ladies getting an opportunity to go play in college and then out of that, we're getting our, our player pool. So when we look at that, it's been more accessible, still not perfect, still needs a lot of improvement, but we've had a lot more accessibility there for the, 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 the female players. The way these things change is we have to get serious about our priorities first. Get those principles in place. What matters most? And then let that guide our decisions. Start with the end in mind. 
We want to be the best soccer league in America, and we want to be the best sports league in America. Let's figure that out. How do we get there? All these other leagues, even non-soccer leagues, these American sports leagues, are always asking these questions of themselves. Look at what the NFL's tampered with and experimented with and, and taken risks with over the last few years. The NBA, Major League Baseball, they're all trying to figure out how do they do what they do better. How do they do what they do better? Where have you seen real substantive change from the U.S. Soccer Federation or Major League Soccer that is in line with these other sports leagues? I would argue that we've not seen much. And I don't know if that is intentional or if it's ineptitude. Because there's a lot of that within the U.S. Soccer Federation. Our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. If you have not uh, gone to charitywater.org, I encourage you to do so and join the story of providing clean drinking water to people all over the world and make their story part of your story and your story part of theirs. Go to charitywater.org for more information. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. And you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Into the show. Thanks for tuning in on this Thursday, October the 24th. I want to pick back up on an article. We were um, efforting to uh, to get uh, Ishmael Kushkush on the show today um, and uh, had some uh, scheduling conflicts, and so we're going to circle back to him. But I want to pick back up on an article that um, he wrote, and um, it's on the nation.com and it's U.S. Soccer's neglecting Latino talent and it shows 
There are millions of youths playing soccer in the United States, so why is the, is the men's national team so terrible? This is an article that he published at thenation.com. And uh, yesterday we were going through first part of this article. I want to pick up here in uh, in, the, in this next uh, section. In October 2017, when the men's national team ranked 28 in the world, lost to Trinidad and Tobago, ranked 99, American soccer fans were crushed. For the first time since 1986, the United States had failed to qualify for the World Cup, and all they needed was a draw. One publication dubbed the match, quote, the worst loss in history of in the history of U.S. men's soccer, end quote. In other countries, when that happens, it's time to clean house, Perez said, referring to Hugo Perez. After the loss to Trinidad and Tobago, U.S. soccer president Sunil Gulati decided that he would not run for re-election. But in the first contested U.S. soccer presidential election in nearly two decades, U.S. soccer membership elected Carlos Cordero, a former Goldman Sachs executive and Gulati's vice president. U.S. soccer officials say they have long-term plans in place. Booth wrote in an email that they're increasing the number of scouts in our talent identification department, finding more touch points at the grassroots level with youth clubs, restructuring our coaching license pathway, and working more closely with our member organizations. Notice there, no strategic plan, nothing published, just some buzzword phrases to act like they're getting something done. I want to interject here and also say that my dad raised me on a phrase. He said, do you have something to say or are you just saying something? And too often when pressed, you find out that U.S. soccer doesn't really have something to say. They don't have a plan to publish. They don't have an action to take. They just have something where they are, excuse me, they have something, they, have, they are saying something. They're just doing something. They are looking busy. But this busy work isn't getting us anywhere. Back to the article. Still, many critics fear that U.S. soccer hasn't reformed. The U.S. men's national team under 23 uh, team has failed to qualify for two consecutive Olympic games and missed three out of the last four. After a loss to Mexico in this year's Gold Cup final and with the United States co-hosting the 26th World Cup with Mexico and Canada, the calls to transform how American soccer is managed have grown louder. Then on October 15th, the U.S. lost 2-0 to Canada. The first time Canada had defeated the U.S. men's national team in 34 years. Failing to qualify for the World Cup is a symptom rather than the problem itself, said former U.S. men's national team midfielder Kyle Martino, now an NBC sports analyst who ran against Cordero. The failure is the byproduct of a top-down strategy. It's trickle-down soccer. Contrary to those that dismiss the game as un-American, soccer isn't a recent sport. Working-class English, Scottish, and Irish immigrants brought the game to New England in the 1880s, and a successful professional league operated between 1921 and 1932. 
The, uh, the United States even finished third in the inaugural World Cup in 1930. The Great Depression and World, World War II, however, put a halt to the game's growth, and it nearly disappeared in this country outside of urban, ethnic, and immigrant communities. There was a brief revival after the 1950 World Cup when the U.S. national team shocked everyone by beating the favorite England in the first round. At this time, like in much of the rest of the world, people from, socio, from all socioeconomic backgrounds mostly played soccer informally. Gregory Reck, co-author of American Soccer, History, Culture, Class, explained to me. This, he said, began to change in the late 50s and 60s when the rise of collegiate soccer and in the 70s with the proliferation of expensive youth soccer programs. This is when the game became largely a middle and upper class sport among white Americans. So the view that soccer is recent is due to the fact that it is recent for the socioeconomic class that occupies the bulk of the organized soccer landscape today, Rex said. It also explains how most players made it to the U.S. men's national team. The national teams were recruited through the development pipeline, pay-to-play youth soccer, university soccer, and then pro and national team, Rex said. It limited access to those players coming from families with financial and cultural capital. In other words, it was exclusionary. Add to this that coaches from Northern Europe, especially England and Scotland, have had a tremendous influence on soccer in the U.S. Traditionally, English soccer focused less on on technical skills, creativity, and imaginative play associated with Latin American soccer and more on physical strength. For decades, England-trained coaches dominated the ranks of American youth soccer with a later influx of coaches from Germany and the Netherlands. Because Latin American players, coaches, and staff played a different style of game, the U.S. soccer establishment never invested in developing these individuals, explained Mike Watola, the executive director of Soccer America. They almost had a disdain for it. As chair of U.S. soccer's now dormant diversity task force, let me repeat that again, now dormant diversity task force from 2008 until 2015, Doug Andreessen saw another problem. Soccer officials, particularly those with youth state associations, failed to recognize, even recognize that anything was wrong. They thought if the Latinos wanted to play, if the kids that were from Nigeria wanted to play, they could play. Well, that was far from the case, he said. The, in, the inability to acknowledge the barriers faced by many young players of color, according to Andreessen, applies to many at the highest levels of U.S. soccer. I am not sure any, anybody in U.S. soccer understood there was a problem either. That's not to say their intention, intentions were not good, but the intentions and understanding the issue are two different things. And this is such a key point here. One hurdle, Andreessen said, is access. By the 60s, U.S. men's national team players typically came from university soccer powerhouses like St. Louis University and later the University of Virginia. More recently, most players either climbed the ladder of the U.S. men's national team youth teams 
or were recruited from Major League Soccer or a foreign league. According to U.S. Soccer, currently 90% of its youth national teams come from the U.S. Soccer Development Academy, a league composed of youth academies and clubs from various organizations. About 70 to 80% of those players come from the MLS academies. Most of the rest are based internationally. When asked about the demographic breakdown of male U.S. soccer-affiliated youth clubs, U.S. soccer didn't have an answer. For the most part, our members do not track demographics, and we do not have that information, wrote Booth. Do you understand that we, our problem here is a leadership problem? It's not a racial problem. It's not a vision problem. It's not an MLS problem. Those are all symptoms as well of a leadership problem. The families of youths who play for competitive soccer clubs, explained in Dreesen, pay fees that can range as high as $5,000 to $17,000 per season. At IMG Academy, whose alumni include former U.S. men's national team player Landon Donovan, it can cost nearly $80,000 a year if you're boarding. According to the Census Bureau, the median household income for Hispanics in 2018 was 51450 well below the overall median of 63179 and the 70642 median for whites. That same year, the Sports and Fitness Industry Association reported that only 28% of families involved in soccer had incomes below $50,000. More than a third of soccer families had whole household incomes of above $100,000. There have been some remedies, for example. Most of MLS development academies are free, which has likely led to improvement in Latino and black player representation in U.S. men's national team youth teams. Still, the number of kids in these academies is limited. They, they still only represent a small percentage of placement options for the huge number of youth players, said Rothenberg. At the lowest age groups, black and Latino kids are not being developed for elite competition. According to U.S. Soccer's media kit, there are 3.7 million kids playing soccer today in these registered leagues. But Andreessen estimates that there are an additional 10 to 14 million kids playing in unaffiliated leagues, often denigrated as pirate leagues. U.S. soccer cannot speak to the accuracy of Andreessen's estimate. These range from teams run by a local YMCA to the numerous immigrant leagues. There are whole sections of our country that have leagues that are just Latino, Andreessen said. Think about that for a minute. U.S. soccer, three point, even at $3.7 million, we're not producing Messi, Ronaldo, Salah, Mane, Bernardo Silva. Andreessen's estimating we have another 10 to 14 million kids in unaffiliated leagues. 
nearly three or or actually nearly five, four to five times the number of players that actually play in official U.S. soccer sanctioned leagues. Unbelievable. One problem, he said, is that U.S. soccer largely works through volunteers and underpaid staff. Even Andreessen's old position as chair of the Diversity Task Force was unpaid. He said that before the Diversity Task Force was put on what now appears to be a permanent hiatus, he told U.S. soccer leadership to take this out of the hands of volunteers and hire a permanent diversity officer like other major sports organizations. In an email, Booth said that U.S. soccer hired Tanya Wallach as its first chief talent and inclusion officer in August of 2017 to lead our diversity and inclusion efforts. Despite repeated requests, U.S. soccer did not make Wallach available for an interview. When asked about the diversity task force, Booth said the original task force, which Andreessen headed, had met its strategic goal. He also pointed to a new diversity and inclusion working group that is part of the Youth Soccer Task Force. They are charged with recommending and implementing practical ways to provide more opportunities for inclusion and to encourage more diversity among players, coaches, referees, and administrators, he explained. Let me explain to you what he just explained. Let me tell you what's really happening. We are rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Forming committees to form committees to talk about ideas that maybe one day could be something more than just an idea. We need action groups. Not committees that just discuss things forever. Yet of the 60 people on the Youth Soccer Task Force, listen, only two are Hispanic. This includes U.S. Soccer President Cordero, who was elected. And neither of them come from soccer backgrounds. Booth said U.S. Soccer acknowledged that we should have included more Latinos as part of the Youth Task Force working groups. You think? (laughs) This federation cannot get out of its own way. It's unbelievable at the ineptitude. It it is a classic case, and I have seen this um, in churches. U.S. Soccer is very much like churches in America, many churches have pastors and staff members that all they do every day is they go to the church or the church offices and work. Now, I'm not devaluing what they're working on, but when they only go and talk to themselves Monday through Friday and they never get out in the community and have conversations or do their work in coffee shops and meet people and talk to people, you start to believe your own press clippings. It's, it becomes an insular, isolated work environment. 
and you start to convince yourself that these ideas that you threw up on the wall make sense, and they do for all of you because you are all on the same page. You're all going to work every day working at a church. But when you don't get out in the community, you don't know what's going on. You can't meet people. You don't know real-world problems that they're going through. You don't know how best to do your church or ministry programming because you're locked up in an office all day. You're not actually meeting the people where they are. You're always asking them to come to you. This has been a, an issue for churches, for American churches, especially for a long time. This is the same problem with U.S. soccer. They're in U.S. soccer world. They're isolated. They're doing their own thing, and they can't even see that all these decisions they're making are not good choices because there, there is no outside voices. There are no outside voices here. They're, they're not structured in a way that they have to be accountable to those around them, that they have to be inclusive of those around them. Booth said U.S. soccer acknowledged that we should have included more Latinos as part of the youth task force working groups, adding that they are actively working to add additional individuals to rectify the situation. It is really stunning that this happened, Watola said. It also shows me how unattached the leadership is. Again, this is a leadership problem. And we are going to get back to more of this article tomorrow on tomorrow's show about where U.S. soccer really is. This article does a really good job of, of exploring not just on a, on a micro level or on a specific issue level, but on a macro level, some of the issues that U.S. soccer is facing. And they're numerous. But as Kyle Martino po- pointed out, They are all symptoms of the larger issue, which is a deficiency in leadership. And if the leaders in place haven't been able to see that and fix it, and they haven't, then we need a a wholesale change. We need new leaders. Because U.S. soccer is... One giant underachievement of what could be the greatest soccer country on earth if we ever get it right. Thanks for watching the show today. As always, you can watch on facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at danielworkman.com. You can catch me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. Send me your thoughts. Love to interact with you. And uh, we look forward to getting back and uh, seeing everyone again tomorrow. Thanks for watching. Goodbye. Goodbye.